Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today's episode 223. We're going to be interviewing Steffi. How are you doing, Steffi? I'm doing really good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to do this. We were just chatting before. You're uh, heavily involved in a recovery right now, right? You work for a bunch of nonprofits and stuff. Yes, I, I try to get out there anywhere I can. So anywhere That's that awesome. needs me, I'm trying to trying to just build up the experience so I can help others. Just and like I can help. Exactly. You can't you can't help someone if you haven't been through it yourself. So let's get started here. I was telling you before, the first question I ask everybody is tell me about your childhood and growing up. Okay, so I I grew up um, living a double life from a really young age. Uh, so I used to think, I don't know if a lot of people have heard of like who MK Ultra is. <laughs> but, from the CIA? Yes. Yes, they but used when to I do. Discovered... <laughs> For what people that? that don't know it, it's when the CIA used to do mind experiments trying to make like the Manchurian candidate, right? Yes. <laughs> exactly. Now, I know I'm not like some double agent or none of that happened, but something that kind of resonated with me when I heard about some of the experiences was some of the tactics used were similar ones that I went through growing up. Except I didn't get any cool, like, extra strength or, like, you know, superpowers. And not that, that I'm aware of, you know, not so that I'm aware of. What kind of stuff would you say was similar to, like, what do you mean by you say you went through some of that stuff? Explain a little more. So um, as I go through more, it kind of makes itself more obvious. But I was introduced to, like, sex and drugs and, like, shooting up from a very young age. How old? So, um, I was drinking at, by the time I was eight, I was already drinking hard liquor and, uh, I was already shooting up meth when I was 12. So I was doing cocaine learn, at 10. How did you learn to shoot up at that age? Who showed you? Um, my dad, my biological father. So, um, it started, so <laughs> my mom had me when she was 17 years old and my mom, I love her to pieces. Shout out to your mom for her birthday today, by the way. Oh, thank Happy you very much. It is my mom's birthday today. Um, and I love my mom. And if it wasn't for my mom and my stepdad and the foundation that they really created in me for my belief system in God and some virtues, uh, I, I don't think I would have survived or I would have been a really cold hearted person. So my mom wanted to go through, she couldn't go through with an abortion when she found out she was pregnant with me. So she found a family from New York to fly all the way to Utah because that's where I'm from to adopt me. But as soon as she held me in her arms, she realized she couldn't give me up. And so she decided to keep me against all odds. Um, when I was two, her and my biological father split up and she met my stepdad and gave birth to my sister and my brother. So I grew up living predominantly in my mom's house for those like my elementary school years. And I mean, it wasn't an easy upbringing by any means. Like we were really poor. Uh, you know, they were still growing and young and I was the oldest. So I was kind of helping out with my siblings a lot more, but like I never felt unloved and we would go to church a lot and we were just really active in like Christian church, like non-denominational stuff. Uh, so that was one of the components. So I had this like strict, virtuous, like moral upbringing over here. I really believed in Jesus. Like I was always telling everybody about Jesus and how they could, how we could save their life. And I would just be talking to his pictures on the walls. Like it was, I'd have little Bible studies with my stuffed animals. Like that's how passionate I was. So I had this very moral, strong upbringing on this side, but then my biological father was my hero. He was my idol. And I mean, of course it was nice to go visit him because he'd spoil me. I'd get a ton of gifts. He'd give me all the attention, 
but he also played on any insecurities I had in my home with my mom and my stepdad. Uh, because I felt there were some noticeable differences in how I was treated over my other siblings. And so he would start to like, oh, hey, like, listen to this, like, music that you're not allowed to listen to in your Christian home. And this started like six, seven, eight years old. I'm not sure how young I was when he started to sexually abuse me, like sexually molest me. But I was really young and I was showing signs from a really early age. So I would go with him and I would start drinking and I would feel guilty, but then I'd tell God, oh, just, I want him to be saved. So I felt like I was making a sacrifice in a sense to try to save my dad and get him salvation. Like I knew something was wrong with him, but I loved him and I wanted to fix him, you know? And so I would go, I remember one time uh, during my elementary school years, uh, I was visiting him for the weekends and I know that I had to have had alcohol poisoning for the first time. Because early in the morning, I started throwing up everywhere. I was throwing up like all over the shower, all over him, all over myself, everywhere. <laughs> on the car ride back to my mom's on that Sunday, he told me to tell her that we had gone to the zoo and that I must have had uh, food poisoning from there. So when I got home, I told my mom, yeah, we went to the zoo and I think I had food poisoning. But then I started to describe these funny faces that the monkeys made at me. And I look back on, on my life and I'm like, that was really when a split started to happen. Because not only was I replacing memories of what my dad had done to me the night before with something new and made up, this is about the time I remember creating like a new neural pathway in my brain that I started using to cope with traumatic events. And that survival technique was one that really held me back later on throughout my life. Because I feel like the things that we learn in survival mode end up being our shackles as we try to integrate and normalize ourselves into regular society. Um, around the age of 10, I tried my first combination of cocaine and tequila with my dad. And this became pretty ritualistic for us. This was after reading my essay in front of the whole entire school at the end of fifth grade on why I would always be drug free. Um, not long after that is when I really remember my dad having his little girlfriends do up my hair and do up my makeup and like setting me up on dates but I still had that really like virtuous foundation in God. And so even though I didn't understand everything going on, I, I understood enough to know that I didn't wanna have sex until I was married because that's what I was taught. So no matter how many dates or like I got set up on and no matter how much attention or like gifts these men showered upon me, some part of me still refused to cross that line of actual intercourse. So since I wasn't cooperating, and I'm not sure why my dad, I look back and I try to figure it out, and I'm sure there's some in-depth psychological explanation for it, right? But I'm not sure why my dad didn't want to be the actual one to take my virginity, since he had already been molesting me for years, but he didn't. And since I wasn't complying or cooperating with, with his plans, I ended up losing my virginity in a staged attack in the Ogden Cemetery when I was 11. So I was already smoking meth. What do you mean by staged attack? Well, so as I kind of go a little bit further, it kind of explains it, but my dad set it up and I didn't realize that until later on throughout my life. Like looking at it as an adult, it's obvious because of how everything played out. Uh, but at the time I would have never known that. I would have never expected that because I trusted my dad and I, I felt ashamed for everything. Um, so I had gone into this cemetery, like I mentioned, I was smoking meth already on occasion, 
And so I went into the cemetery to smoke meth with this guy I had never met before. Um, he was like this really tall, hairy guy. He was in his early 30s, around my dad's age. And as we were in there, he attacked me and he raped me. Uh, so as I staggered back to my dad's apartment uh, with my clothes all tattered and torn, my dad made this comment to me. He said, hey, it looks like you had a fun night. Now, for at this point, like warning sirens were going off inside of me. For some reason, I didn't want my dad to know I was no longer a virgin. So I lied to him and I told him that I had gotten into a fight, but he didn't believe me. And so the next morning when he went off to work, the man from the night before let himself into the apartment again. And that's how I now recognize it was a staged attack because I don't know how he knew where we lived or how he was able to just walk into the apartment or how he knew that my dad had just left to work. And as I looked at the police report later on, I, I recently um, got the police report for everything because I've started sharing my story to bring awareness to like trafficking and exploitation. And so I, as I went through the police report, in the police report, it, it said that he hadn't gone back to work, that he wasn't even at work that day, he had just left. And so he told me he was at work. And so that's another component that made me go, okay, so this wasn't in my imagination, like he really did set this up. Um, so the guy lets himself into the apartment and starts a repeat of what had taken place in the cemetery. My dad walks in pretending he forgot something sees everything going on and he just turned back around and went back out to work or wherever he went to um and then after that I really I really didn't know how to process because I mean I'm 11 years old so I didn't know how to process all this pain and this fear that I was experiencing I can barely even try to reconnect to that like little girl version of me from that time because I know that that pain is more than I can really even try to process today even after all this time uh, I didn't want to be with my mom anymore at her house. And I didn't want to be at my dad's house anymore. And I thought I was pregnant because I really didn't know any better. So I ran away from home. And when the cop found me, um, the cop, my dad was with the cops when they found me. And the cop chased me down and he tackled me. And he asked me why I ran away. And through my tears, I yelled at him. I told him I thought that I was pregnant. And then I told him that I had been raped. And... When I said this out loud, I know for a moment that I felt some sort of relief because I felt like I was doing the right thing because that's what we're taught to do, right? Mm -hmm. I felt probably what would have been like the equivalent of empowerment, but that sensation didn't last for very long. And I wouldn't feel that sensation again until like two decades later. The cop let me ride back to my mom's house with my dad as he followed the car right there. My dad yelled at me. Um, he said that I wouldn't be allowed to see him anymore if I said anything about both of the rapes. So he schooled me on exactly what to leave it or what to say and what to leave out. And when I look back on it, I don't really even think he pretended to care about what I was going through at that time. And we got back to my mom's house. And when we told her what happened, she told me to get in the car and on the whole car ride to the hospital, she yelled at me. She said, I hope you're ready to be a mom. And she told me that if I'm not pregnant, she was going to get me on birth control. Now, I know my mom has a hard time dealing with that, that component of it all. And, but I don't blame her for anything because she was still really young herself. You know, she, 
she was scared and she still had a lot of unresolved trauma of her own. And she, they, we were always taking in families, kids who were struggling in addiction. Like she was a Sunday school teacher. She was always a hard worker and she's a really good mom. Like she's an incredible person. Everybody makes mistakes and I don't harbor and I never really have harbored any resentments against her for that. But it did solidify the belief in my mind that I had nobody in this world who was on my side or who would ever believe in me. And so, that must be hard at such a young age. It was. It was really hard. I felt so alone. And I didn't know how to process anything. And then you take in, like, you get guilt and you get shame. And, you know, I already felt, I thought I was supposed to wait till I was married to have sex. So I felt like damaged goods at that point. You know, I felt like I felt God. And I just didn't know what to do. And I just, you know, and nobody was there to protect me that should have been there to protect me fact my protector he was like a culprit of it and it, so it made it really it changed my whole outlook on life because in school I was very driven and outgoing I was like always in advanced classes and like high honor roll and always entering into science competitions or writing competitions like I was self-driven nobody pushed me to try to excel but I always wanted to excel that was just part of my personality and so it just made things it started to just make things which like I still maintained all my really good grades I dropped out of school oh there you are you broke up for just a moment okay okay sorry I was like oh no what happened that's all right so um, you were talking about school but I ended up but it's amazing that at such a young age that you were so, so self-driven. Yeah. I mean, if I was, I did terrible in school and I, I contribute, or I say some of my home life contributed to that. So you must have been real strong to be so self-driven at such a young age. Thank you. I just love to read. I think that's what really helped is just, I would escape into a lot of books. And I, I think that, I don't know, we already have, they say we already have big components, like major components of our personality from a young age, right? And so that's one thing I latched onto as I've been trying to like search for my identity as an adult. I'm like, well, I know that I'm driven. <laughs> I know that was a core component of my identity is I love to learn things from a very young age. So whenever I have like um, imposter syndrome going on or I question certain things about myself, that's that's when I really hop into stuff like that is just from the childhood stuff and just things that I I know are part of me good or bad um so after that whole incident happened with my mom and the hospital and all that I I ended up moving in with my dad and that's when things really took a turn from the worst they went from just bad to just terrible and I don't go into all the details about what it was like living with him um but but there was a lot of pornographic films. There was a lot of um, trafficking and, and escorting and just and you were what, some when, crazy were scenarios, you him and his friends. How uh, old were you when you moved in? Um, I was barely 12, barely 12. Am I losing you a lot? here uh you you're you're uh is you're my, good right now. my connection bad no i think you're good for now okay 
okay um sorry i have i'm poor <laughs> my internet's <laughs> not the greatest but uh um so i move in with my dad i'm 12 years old and it uh him and his friends were would come through my dad would manipulate me a lot to uh just have these he was just trying to um groom me and convince me that it was okay so he would even use knowing i love the bible he would even take stories from the bible and justify like oh it's okay like these girls had sex with their dad or you know this is just sex is a very common thing and so it just turned into just like a house full of just sex and drugs and rock and roll and I had to keep going to school and keeping the, the good grades up. But in this, like, appearance became a huge thing. I developed really, I struggle with my self-esteem. I'm starting to finally grow out of that a little bit or heal from that. But it's something that I've always struggled with because my dad used to have me just stand there naked. And he would tear apart my body and make me go on these, like, Hollywood diets. And always trying to keep that girl next door look going. Uh, I looked, I had a lot of similarities. He would always call it the, as he was trying to get clients in the Mary Kate Nashley look, which was a very innocent girl next door look. I'm, I'm a very blonde, blonde child. And so it just, that was one of his selling points. He had people from Las Vegas uh, that he was really close with from when he used to work out there with his ex-wife who they had like this whole escorting company. So there was just a lot of that there. Um, I was already shooting at meth at the age of 12 and I, real quick, was he making money from it? If I have yeah. a friend. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, there was, there was that component of it. And I think a lot of it too, like he'd make money off it, but I think a lot of it too, just gave him some sort of uh, satisfaction as well. I think that was just something. Cause I know he didn't, he didn't make money off everything. I'm sure. I don't know. I, I don't know all the details of that part of it, but, um, I, I, I made it really hard to develop friendships too, because I would, if I had like any like little high school or like middle school boyfriend or whatever. Right. And I started to get attached. He'd be like, you can't get attached. There's no such thing as love. And I'd be like, but I really have a crush on this guy, you know? And so he'd have like the parties at our house where in the basement, you know, I could have all my friends over and we could drink, but then like he would say, okay, you know that you have a third wheel right there, that girl, you need to go have a threesome with that guy you have a crush on because you're getting too close. And so I wasn't allowed to really go through regular teenage emotions. I always had to turn sexual. And then I always had that persona of like, oh, it's the school slut at school. You know, she'll just do whatever, but it wasn't like that for me inside, you know, and I couldn't even have friends that were females over because he'd be like, oh, go and drink with them. You guys smoke cigarettes in your room and go try having three-way kisses with them, you know, and this was at like 12, 13 years old. And so I didn't really get to develop healthy friendships. In fact, I quit having them because I felt almost a need to protect people for me. I didn't realize I was protecting them from him. I thought it was me that they needed to be protected from. And I carried that with me for a really long time. I would threaten to turn my dad and I tried to turn him in one time. I thought I'd had enough of the abuse. I told him he had like two hours to get his things and leave because I was going to call the cops and turn him in. And his response to that was to grab a box cutter and begin stabbing his arm over and over with it. And I ended up having to drive him down uh, 
a canyon that we were living in to the McKady Hospital. And he received a bunch of stitches all the way up his arm, but he missed a main artery. And so after that, I started cutting myself and like carving words into my legs, like I hate you, dad. And just that was my act of rebellion. I did try going back to my mom and my stepdad's house a couple times, but being there just really enhanced all the insecurities and the realization that I was so much different than my siblings and their life. And I had so much shame and everyone thought I was just being a rebellious teenager because, because that was just what I was doing. But really I was mostly covering for my dad on stuff. You know, and I wasn't even really being that crazy. It's just was different than the Christian way, you know? So I was just, so it was just hard. Uh, so I would end up leaving there at my mom's house because at least at my dad's house, I could be high and I could drink. So it made, it made everything a little bit easier. I ended up, my dad decided like once I hit 14, I wasn't really going to school anymore at all. And I was just, I, I played guitar a lot, and violin, and that was kind of my escape. And I would always just, I would just leave my dad's house and I would just go walk around town carrying my guitar with this little portable amp and headphones. And I would just wander. I would just wander, do a lot of psychotropics. Um, that was my favorite. I really hated meth at the time. I hated the needle because it always meant like some crazy sex stuff. And it always stayed that way for me. So my addiction with the needle as I got older just got really bad because it was just, I wanted to die on it. It became like a, a something I couldn't control and put me in some bad, high risky situations. Uh, but I ended up, I ended up, um, I would start where I started working a job and I try to stay away from my dad's, but I always wound up back there and he was very manipulative. So around the age of 15, like I was just barely 15 or I was almost 15. I'm not a hundred percent, but he decided to move us out to California. And, and in my mind, I'm like, yeah, let's go to California. I'm going to go to Hollywood. I've watched a lot of VH1 specials. I know that all I have to do to become a famous rock star is make it to Hollywood, find a street corner, play my little heart out. Then I'd find my dream band and I'd make it big and my life would be all better. So we made it to California. And after I got a little bit of rest there, I decided I was going to take off. I stole a vehicle and I was on my way to California. And unfortunately, I didn't make it to or on my way to Hollywood. But unfortunately, I didn't make it there. Uh, the car broke down, alternator went out. Instead, I made it into the arms of a sweet talking pimp. So I'm 15, living on the streets in California. I meet this pimp. I'm already. Where did you meet him? I already have a lot of vulnerabilities. I'm sorry. Where did you meet him? Uh, just he was outside drinking beer in front of a house. <laughs> and <laughs> I was just wandering around and I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll have a beer. Sure. Let's smoke some weed. And. Then we went into the middle of the desert and then he's just like, Hey, just come stay with me and I'll take care of you. And I thought he was really attractive and I was like, sure. Yeah, let's do this. And I'm all trying to be some tough, like hardcore girl, like thinking I've got all this street cred, probably <laughs> exaggerating everything. And he saw right through it. You know, I was just trying to find somewhere I could fit and survive. And so I, I move in with him and he it didn't take a lot of convincing to really for him to tell me hey go go out on the streets like go to that truck stop and go sleep with that guy there and bring me back some money and this is your quota 
And it didn't take much to convince me of that because I'd already been living that my whole life. Like, well, for a long time already, you know, from childhood with my dad. And so I was like, all right, sure, let's do that. And so I just wanted, I figured the more money I'd bring into him, the more like approval I would get for him because I needed that at that time. You know, I really just, just wanted to belong somewhere and I was just so lonely and I didn't, I missed my, I missed my brother and my sister a lot. And I walked like, I don't know. I just remember always sitting there walking like up and down the road and going into these crazy situations. Like I wasn't even afraid. I look back, I wasn't even afraid to get in these trucks with these men and I wasn't afraid they were going to kill me. And I just, I just existed. And I just had so much sadness. I remember one day I was in the middle of the desert and I just threw myself on the ground and I was just crying and screaming and like throwing a temper tantrum I'm still 15 at this time but I just had so much ache inside of me and I look back that's probably one of the like if I look at my like top five saddest days that's one of them because I can just feel that anguish still as I think back because then I just completely detached and shut down from there uh my pimp I was like his bottom bitch he had other he had other girls after that like but I was his main girl and he trusted me um, with everything because he knew he had his grip in me right and so me being a minor put everybody at, in a high-risk situation and so I called my mom one day and I said hey can I get emancipated and she's like she was more than more than willing to agree and I could have had the papers emailed to her or like faxed to her but I convinced my pimp that I had to come back to Utah to have her sign them in person and he trusted me. He's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, go get, go do what you got to do. Cause he knew I'd come back. You know, he believed me. And so I, I came back to Utah on the bus. Um, it was shortly before my 16th birthday. And I had my mom sign the papers in person. And I, I think I was trying to see if I would be worth fighting for, you know, but nobody was really fighting for me. And I know it doesn't help that I was a really good liar. And really by that point, nobody would have known what to do anyway right? It was just so much already. And so she signed the papers. And right before I was set to take the bus back to California, I grabbed a knife from the dishwasher and I stabbed myself in the stomach with it. And I still have like a really good sized scar there. I went to the hospital, but I still got released just in time to catch the bus back to California. So there was all these warning signs that nobody knew what to do with, you know? Because that's what happens in these situations. People don't really know the subtle signs to look for or the not so subtle signs, what to do if they if they run across those. And there wasn't a lot of resources back then. You know, I'm 32 and this was, you know, back when I'm 15 years old, there wasn't there wasn't much going on on the front lines of, of all of this. People still see like trafficking or uh, exploitation as something that happens like in the movie Taken, right? something extreme like that they don't realize that it's just happening maybe right even next door or even like right in their household it's it's more common than people think so I, I made it back to California and shortly after my 16th birthday my pimp was arrested and one of his charges was for being with me because I was a minor so uh, I wouldn't cooperate with the police because anybody who knows the rules of the street know better than to cooperate with the police right so I don't know if it was they shooed me out of town because they wanted nothing to do with me because I wasn't cooperating or if they thought they were trying to protect me. Because as I look back at the police report that I gathered from then, back then, 
the guy ended up going to prison because I guess he had two priors before me and I didn't know that. So I carried all this guilt thinking, oh no, I got my pimp arrested because of my age. And I, I for some reason, I carried that guilt. Um, but the reality was he had been doing this for a long time. I mean, he ended up going to prison for a long time for it and I didn't even have to testify. I found all this out later. And so they, they kicked me out of town. I wind up in Las Vegas. So barely 16 years old, a really young blonde girl have all these, just these carrying all these vulnerabilities with me, right? Because I already have all of this like life up to this point of being trafficked, being abused, um, pretty much probably walking with a sign on my back, but not realizing. it. So I thought maybe I could be an independent prostitute. That's all I knew. I needed to make money. I knew that, well, hey, I was making all this money for him. I bet you I could make the money for myself. I got this. So I start working on the streets. I don't have ID. I don't have anything. I'm working on the streets in Las Vegas and I'm not out there for very long before a group of men um, attack me, take me to this warehouse industrial area and they rape me. And I don't know why they let me live, but they let me live. They gave me some severe warnings with a gun to my head to never work in their area again. So I was like, okay, I won't work in your area again. It's fine. And they dropped me right back on the strip of Las Vegas, like Las Vegas Boulevard. And so I'm like, all right, well, this isn't going to work out very well for me. And I didn't know what to do from there. I didn't have the the environment or the confidence to go into like these high end casinos because I was still really insecure and I didn't have any self-worth or, well, self-esteem, you know, both. So I... Uh, I'm just like stuck wandering in Vegas, just so confused on what to do. And then I see this young girl, uh, she was either my age or younger. She, she looked really young. She could have probably 13 or 14 really. And I watched this pimp kick all of her teeth out of her head just because she looked at another pimp wrong. And I found myself just running toward trying to help her, you know, but then like, you know, I, I go over there, I'm trying to help her. I'm trying to console her, trying to get her in somewhere from there. And then a different pimp picks me up. And so I'm like, okay, what do I do now? You know, you don't know what to do. You just see all this stuff and it's like a war zone, a just different type of war zone. And so I end up getting with this other pimp and he hooks me up with all these women trying to like get me like all fixed up and get these pictures taken of me. And so now I'm thrust into this whole other ring and they all know I'm underage. They're giving me these fake IDs to take into these casinos, teaching me how to negotiate, like, but I still didn't have the confidence. I'm like, I don't think I'm worth that much money. You know, it was, I didn't know how to, how to represent myself. And that's kind of what got me picked up. I didn't like the going in the casino. So I was back on the street, walking on the strip and hoping I could just get enough clients to make my quota. So I didn't get beat up, you know? Uh, and I ended up, getting um an undercover <laughs> uh he gets in the car with me he's like oh do you want to smoke some weed and or I get in the car with him and then he's like you want to smoke some weed and so he was trying to make me feel comfortable around him and I'm like sure and then we start negotiating and then we get surrounded by these undercover <laughs> cops and I'll never forget it because I'm lying about my age I'm giving him all this wrong information and it was this, this lady, she was this black cop lady and she was her detective. And 
I'll never forget her because as I tried to like justify things in my life, thinking people aren't that bad. Like there's no way I looked my age. I looked older. Like people aren't that shitty. You know, she, she's like, she is lying about her age. Look at her baby face. She's giving you wrong information. She has a baby face. Like there's no way she's 19 years old. No way. And so I'll always remember that because I know like, I'm like, there's no way I looked that old. I mean, I was all dolled up that day and there's no way, you know, I, I looked 19 and she said so. And so I get taken to Clark County Juvenile Detention Center and I had to be in isolation in there because I was a white girl and they said that if they populated me out with all the other teenagers, I would probably get beat up and possibly killed because they didn't like white girls in there. And so I'm like stuck in watching all the girls like through my cell go to school or go eat together. And I'm just kind of just stuck <laughs> in the cell. And it was really, it was really lonely. But I remember being in there and having this, this moment. Like I was just talking to God. And at that day, I made a commitment to God and to myself that I was never going to give up. I knew that I could keep going down the path I was on and I would be completely justified because like, right. Like I'd gone through enough stuff that I would just end up another tragic story, uh, another statistic, but it would be understandable, but I didn't want that for my life. And I knew it was going to be hard. I had, I sometimes look back and I'm like, I had so much more self-awareness then than I, than I do now, but I knew it was going to be hard. And I knew that I would fall down, but I, I told myself no matter what happened, I was always going to stand back up. I was always going to stay accountable and I was always going to fight. Like I wasn't going to let it take me. So I, I wish I could say that that was the end of my nightmare, you know, that I had that moment of clarity and then I lived happily ever after. And here I am just, that's it. Didn't quite work like that. I ended up going to court. And on, in the courtroom, I made eye contact with my dad. The system had found him and contacted him and let him know where I was at. So I was released back into his custody. And so he's living in Las Vegas now at this point. And his, uh, his abuse got a lot worse. It was now getting into more like bondage um, stuff. So it was really scary because the clientele that he was setting me up with they just, they were just mean. They were just some, there were some nice people, but there were some very cruel people. And I I convinced myself I liked the pain or whatever, but I didn't. It, I was just detached. It just made me detach more. And so finally I couldn't take it anymore. And I called my mom and I begged her to come home. And that very night she bought me a bus ticket back to Utah. And at this point, I'm 16 years old still. So I'm still 16. I get back to Utah and I find out my little sister, his daughter from a previous marriage, my dad's, um, was going to go live with them. And so the very next day I went into the police station in Ogden and I filed charges against him. And I, the system doesn't make things easy though. There, maybe it's different now, but it was, it was really hard back then. Um, I went in and I poured my little heart out onto all these pages just to be told that uh, every charge had to be filed in every different county. And we were all over the state of Utah, right? So I had to have to go to each police station that stuff happened and then just file those specific charges from there. 
And then we'd have to worry about trying to get him to come back from Nevada to Utah to proceed. And I know if I would have had more of a support network that I would have followed the process more thoroughly, but my little sister didn't go to live with him. So that's all that mattered to me. That was a win. But after making my confessions in the police station, I, I really started to, I paid, I paid a big price for it. I started to get panic attacks and nightmares and all these sensations, these waves of sensations that I had no words for, that I wouldn't even know how to describe. Um, I started to delve into books and articles. I started doing all this research to try to understand just what it was I was going through and try to prepare myself for what maybe I might start going through in the future over all this stuff because it was scary. But I even looked for places to accept me. Like I'm calling treatment centers. I'm like, hey, um, can I come in here? Can you guys help me? I, this is what's happening. I, I've been, been in addiction. I was sexually abused. I don't know how to fix this, but I'm losing my mind. And even one place even said, yeah, mm -hmm. come in. And I go in and I check in and I go through, throw up all my trauma on them. And then they come in and they're like, oh, sorry, we can't accept you. So then they just released me back out onto the streets in Salt Lake after I'm like all like in a hypervigilant state. I had, I had no one that knew how to help me. My age or lack of insurance or their lack of knowledge on the topic made it impossible. Try as I might to advocate for myself, I, I finally fed into the, like gave into the detachment, the need for disassociation. And I started getting high again, you know, smoking meth only late at night at first to try to self-medicate. But as we know, meth takes the reins and just like gone running crazy again and until I was arrested for um, possession. I was going to say, so during this entire time, because you, I mean, that you've, you packed so much experiences into 16 years. We're only at 16 right now. Look at all the stuff yeah. you've been through. How was your drug use and alcohol use during these years? So and it who depends. gave it to you? Did, did your dad give it to you or did you go out and actively buy it? My dad would give it to me. Okay. <clears throat> when it got more into the, I never had to pay for it. Like that's something I, I didn't remember. I don't think I remember buying any drugs at all. And I did a lot of drugs in my teenage years. And I don't think I bought any drugs until I was maybe uh, 19 years old. <laughs> so, and there was a lot of drugs. I did never thought about that until just this very moment. Uh, my dad wasn't, um, we like, we would do the cocaine together. We would do the like lots of, lots of hard liquor together. Sometimes like the marijuana or the psychotropics, the meth was there. The meth was there a lot. His biggest thing was once I started shooting up, he taught me how to be safe about it, you know, but it was more of the clientele that was more providing it at that point than him, but he still did. It was, it was all still welcomed. I, I still see him as just as guilty as them when it comes to that part of it. So. And your main choice was meth. Yeah. I hated meth for a while though. So when I, after I ran um, away in California, I got with the, that, that first pimp and he did not like meth at all. Like he's like, no, like you can do Coke all you want. You can smoke weed all you want, but he didn't need to try to control me too much with drugs. We would drink a ton. Like I was always a drinker. Uh, but as far as the other stuff, I took a break from meth. I think I smoked it a few times with a few of the truckers, but I wasn't shooting up or anything. And when I got to Las Vegas, there wasn't meth around. There was a ton of just cocaine. Uh, so whether it was shooting up Coke, which didn't happen too many times, 
um, because I didn't like the needle at that point, you know, so I would try to avoid those situations. It was mostly just snorting it and then just tons and tons and tons of alcohol. It wasn't really, so that was kind of how my drug use went. And then when I started to smoke meth after I was back in Utah, I would just, it was just smoking it. You know, and I only got it from one person. I didn't want people to know I was doing drugs. I was trying to have the approval of my mom and my stepdad and my siblings and the church, like everybody. I wanted, I wanted to be accepted and I wanted them to be proud of me and I didn't want them to see me as a drug addict. So I was always hiding my drug usage at that point. But you can only hide it for so long, especially when you're all <laughs> screwed up anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, so I stayed, I tried really hard to stay clean. I was just smoking meth and I kind of just stuck to like, I'd get spurts of sobriety through that period. Well, no, actually. So I'm, so I'm 16 at that point. I'm almost, I get locked up. I get out of lockup <laughs> and I'm released to my mom and my stepdad's custody. Now at this point, everybody knows of like, Steph's been arrested for solicitation in Las Vegas. Her dad was sexually abusing her. Like I have, you know, this stuff is now out in the open, but they don't really know what to do with it. But now I see this information is destroying the family unit. It's messing up my mom and my stepdad's relationship. My sister and my brother are just torn up. They have this normal life in the suburbs. Now we're not, they're no longer poor. They have this whole beautiful life in sports, doing all of this stuff and, and I'm watching all of this chaos unravel. And this is one of those other days in my life that I count as just one of the most disappointing days ever. I'll never forget how that felt is I'm watching, I'm watching just how everybody is. I had gone out to have a cigarette, which I wasn't supposed to be doing. And my mom smelt it on me and she comes in and she's trying to learn her like, well, Steph's already been living all this life, but I'm trying to be a, a Christian parent here. And how do I do this the right way? Where is this middle ground? So she gets in my face and she's yelling at me and I duck underneath her arm because I didn't want any like aggression to happen. And I couldn't really control myself and I was scared. I, there would be something, some outburst, right? So I, I run into the bathroom and I lock myself in there and then I hear the whole family fighting upstairs. And I said, you know, it's, I love them and I want to be in their lives, but they're not ready for me and I'm ruining them. So the next morning, uh, when everybody had left to work, I grabbed, I only had like a backpack full of things and I'm barely, I just barely, this is right after my 17th birthday. And I took my backpack of just like whatever little things I had. And I made my way to Nevada to Wendover. That's as much, they have little fun bus tickets. It's $15 to get there from Ogden it's like three hours away but it, I knew I had to leave the state of Utah right so I went to the border the closest border I could get to so now I'm on the streets in Wendover and I get a job at uh, the subway in town and I start working there I'm living out of this little backpack and I would eat there and I'd go clean up in the bathrooms in the casino and just kind of maybe fall asleep in one of the stalls and I was bound and determined not to do drugs anymore. I did not want to do drugs. Now I was still drinking when I could get it, but I didn't want to get high. I hated getting high. And my boss. 
I mean, you froze up she, for a sec. I trusted her. She was this like kind of energy uh, at Subway. And she moved me in with her ex-husband, which I thought was really weird, in this trailer in front of her house. And did I lose you again? No, I can still hear you. Your your video's frozen, but I can hear you. Can you hear me? You got to unmute yourself. <clears throat> I'm so sorry. That's I okay. And now you're back. So you were talking about your boss at Subway, I think it was? Yes. Okay. Uh, so she she was like oh you're living homeless like here let me let me move you in with my ex-husband who lives in this trailer in front of mine and I'm like okay I'm trusting her I'm like maybe this is a safe place like that'll be fine and so I move in with her or move in with him and he worked at Subway also so he always had like I'm like okay he's fine he seems innocent enough well I get in there and it's this house full of these just perverted old men and there was a a woman that lived in there that wasn't her and she was their pack leader and so needless to say next thing I know I'm doing meth again because they're all on meth and shooting up and they're helping me shoot up and it just like was chaos like I remember going to the library in town and printing off pictures of places I wanted to visit someday and posting them up on this rat infested trailer I was living in like there were rats everywhere. Not only were the people like crappy, it was so gross in there. If you turned a light on, you would see rats in their tails, like rats scattered. And it was just, it was just miserable. And so I, uh, one day I had the opportunity to go to Oregon and I took it and I decided, you know, I'm going to start working for myself. I'm done. I'm done with all of these people. I don't care what happened to me in Las Vegas. Like I am not in Vegas anymore and I am going to become an independent prostitute and I'm going to travel and I'm going to have adventures and I'm going to have some freedom. And so that's what I did. I ended up traveling the country on my clientele's dime. I ended up with a car and I went from like all over Northern California and Florida or Oregon and then down into Florida, did a bunch of adventures in between. And there were, I mean, there was a lot there. There was some scary times. There was some like dangerous times, but there was a lot of fun times too. I loved the adventure and I loved that. I really did love that sense of freedom, but I wasn't happy. It didn't matter how much money I received or how nice of rooms I was put up in. I, I felt worthless and I felt abandoned. I felt like a lost cause. I, I wanted to be a part of life. I'd watch these people, these like uh, through my travels, I'd see these girls my age and them like happy. And then I would see, or at least I felt like I would see these looks, these judgmental looks because I just, it was obvious what I was doing, you know? And to me, it was obvious. And so I, I just didn't even know how to try to connect or integrate into society. I was in Kansas of all places when I found out I was pregnant, still 17. <clears throat> I was close to my 18th birthday. Uh, because I miscarried right before my 18th birthday. But as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I didn't smoke another cigarette. Like I went and bought a can of chew just so that I would uh, not be smoking cigarettes. I didn't have another alcoholic drink. I did not consume any drugs. And I called my mom and I said, mom, I need to come home, I'm pregnant. And so I made it home and then I miscarried. 
And I found out that I, I can't have children. I have a lot of scar tissue and damage that happened from stuff that happened when I was really young. So I can't have children on my own. And so that was a really hard thing for me to, to take in. So, um, and then I turned 18. <laughs> so that's all the stuff that happened by the age of 18. Wow. That's, that is so much to happen in such a short amount of time. But you're a strong gal to go through all that. I yeah. mean, you're still, you're still here. That's all that matters. I mean, it brought you to where you are today. So what happens at 18? Did you, because uh, you said you miscarried and turned 18. What happened after that? So when I had ran away from my mom and stepdad's house, uh, nobody knew if I was alive or dead. It actually traumatized everybody. They had me filed as a missing person. They had cops showing up asking for my dental records because a body's found. Like it was very traumatizing for them. And so I had to go turn myself into the system and be like, hey, I'm 18 now. Uh, let's close this case. Uh, this is, I lied through my teeth saying I'd been doing all this positive stuff and I was released from there. But I went to a program. I put myself in a program out in California um, in Bakersfield. That was this Christian uh, based place called Teen Challenge. And so I go out there for a few months. It was cool. It was a cool thing, but I ended up leaving came back and then I just really spent the next little while trying to learn how to live life. So I would go through spurts of sobriety. I'd go like when I get sober, I would like build my life up, become a manager and whatever jobs I decided to try. And, you know, I liked to try everything, whether it was, Oh, Hey, I think I'm going to go try to be a mechanic today. And I'm going to go get these certifications here. Oh, Hey, let me go learn all about mail work. I would just go into these weird <laughs> weird things. And then I would just do really good in them. Uh, and then, but I didn't know how to like what to do once I got to a certain point. So once I started to realize just how far behind in life I was, or I'd have some sort of one of my defects pop up, whether it was, you know, I just feel insecure or I felt like I had a lot of self-condemnation, you know, and I would compare myself. So I had a lot of jealousy of other people. I didn't realize how jealous I was until later, but if I, if I started to see where people were at and I would get frustrated because I didn't know how to get there. And then I would feel like I was less than and incapable and I would end up just destroying everything. I'd be like, I need to get high. I'm at a point where I don't know how to proceed. I just failed, especially if I failed at something. I didn't know how to accept, oh, I failed. It's fine. Get up, move on, try again. Instead, it would be the end of the world for me because I felt that I was a failure and I would never be able to get it. So I would burn everything down. I would go and start getting high and I would just burn it all to the ground and then have to stand back watching helplessly as everything I worked so hard for, I was so passionate for, just disintegrated, just burned to ashes beneath me. And I would get in these really toxic relationships. But in that time, I met my husband. I met him. This was, I met my husband when I was 19. And I just loved him so much from the moment I met him. You know, he was my broken piece that fit. He put up with a lot for me. Uh, but the first time, the first time that we had a fight and that I felt like he broke my heart or I felt rejected, I, I really lost my mind because through my life, I hadn't learned how to 
develop emotional intelligence or how to have healthy relationships or interactions or really how to even be in love. I didn't know much about love. And so I know that I felt all of these emotions toward him and then I, but I didn't know how to handle that. I was still like a little kid in that area, you know, it was yeah. very underdeveloped. And so he broke my heart and I'm like, oh, well, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't like how this feels. So I'll show him. And I was clean at this point. He was anti, like he'd already done the whole drugs, everything. And he, he didn't want drugs, you know? And he told me that would be what, what separated us when I, when I was clean, he told me that. And so I went and I relapsed on meth. And that's when I really got back in with the needle is I relapsed on meth on with the needle and I lost my mind and I had an affair on him and I never could admit to him that I had the affair. Like I couldn't understand how I could love somebody so much. Cause you hear all this stuff. If you love somebody, you're not going to cheat on them. You know, they don't really love you. You hear all this stuff. And, and I, that's true to an extent. Right. But I, I didn't understand this coping mechanism I was using. I didn't know how to, I didn't see it for what it was. And so I had all this guilt and shame, but I, I uh, turned all my guilt onto him. Right. So my guilty conscience made me like not trust anything with him. I blamed him for everything. And then I went really dark. This is when, since of all of that happening, I finally started to feel anger inside and I got very, very angry. And um, my nickname became savage because that's what people, I just would fight everybody. I would, I didn't care. I just got really cold hearted and I, I started selling ounces of this or pounds of that, you know, and becoming so just detached. Like I would lead the way into houses to do home inv invasions. I was trying to be some sort of drug dealing vigilante in the dope house or something. I don't know. Yeah. I remember holding a machete to a man's neck and. I would have killed him if he didn't comply and I would have had no feeling about it. Like I actually liked that, that cool power that I had at that moment. I remember that. And I almost always had a gun on me because I wasn't afraid to pull it, you know, or to use it. And when I look back on that point, like that phase of my life, I don't say those things to try to sound tough or to glorify myself. It's really the opposite. Actually. I'm just very grateful to God that I didn't do anything that I couldn't come back from because I would have done it and who knows where I would be today. My husband ended up um, getting in a motorcycle accident and he died. And through his death, like he was always trying to chase me around. He was always trying to save me. I'm, he's probably was like the first harm reduction model ever advocate out there without even realizing it because he just, he's just like, come home, be my wife, let's do this. But I had so much pride and anger and he was just like, no, we can get you off this. We can do this. Let's try this. And he tried. He really did try. And after he died, it was uh, five months after I lost one of my best friends in my arms in my living room, because that's what happens in drug houses. So I didn't have either one to go to about either one's death, right? I didn't have my friend to talk to. I didn't have my husband to talk to. I had nobody. And as I was sitting there, I recognized this trail of spiritual bodies I was leaving in my wake. It was only then that I really began to see that my actions, they have these consequences. And my consequence for being a really shitty, unempathetic, unaccountable wife was that I would never be able to undo the pain or the humiliation or to make amends with my husband. And that was 
that was the that was a really 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 dark and hard place to be I ended up leaving the state of Utah I had all these warrants I ended up leaving I had like 30 warrants everywhere because I just lost my mind and I just traveled the country again but I wasn't I wasn't really I wasn't escorting or anything like that this time I was in a really I got myself into a really bad scary scary dangerous relationship because I felt nobody was safe for me I thought that I destroyed everything and I needed somebody that wouldn't allow me to manipulate them or take advantage of them to to put me in check that's how I felt I needed somebody that was had more a higher energy than mine to to teach me because I didn't feel capable and so he was very, um, I, one of my first events, like I was drinking, like we got, I was clean for a moment and I was drinking a ton and we were down in Texas. And I remember I was drinking, um, and just crying, calling my husband's brothers. I just miss him, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, he got sick of hearing about it and I didn't want to have sex with him. And I remember he raped me, but I just pushed it away and acted like I never remembered that. The last time I ever seen him, that man, we were, I'd been with him for a couple of years. My job actually helped me get away from him, but I was like in this detached phase, state of mind for a long time with him. The last, my final straw was he, in our apartment that we were living in, he, I woke up to him beating me up. He had a pillow over me and he just was hitting me and I couldn't breathe. And the neighbors broke in the, the door and he had a knife to my throat and he was going to kill me. And that's when I realized, and he kept me with him because I had all these warrants. So he's like, I'm going to turn you into the cops if you leave, you know? And so I finally broke free from him and I came back to Utah and my aunt was dying and I wanted to see her before she died. And that was my, that's what inspired me to really start hitchhiking back to Utah. I hitchhiked from Minnesota to Utah in the winter and made it back to spend time with my aunt before she died. And then I was arrested for all my warrants and did my time and got out. So I was How one of my, you, yeah, I was one of my first real, for? not very long. I, I was a great candidate for probation because I hadn't really done a lot of time before, just like little stints in county. So I think after I took care of all my warrants, every, all these different counties, it, I ended up doing, I think it was like five months. So not a lot. Okay. I did five months. I was put on probation. I successfully terminated probation. I got high a lot in between, but I was able to rein it in enough to fake it. And then I got out, um, or got off terminated from probation and I'm living through all this. I'm like living in these, this chaos of get better. But then I was just a victim of myself and I would destroy everything. I did not engage in relationships with people or interactions. So I'd like, get all this good stuff going on. And then I'd be like, but I think I'm just going to go get high and do all the stupid stuff over here. You know, like we do. And so it was just back and forth. And then I, I was living in my truck because I, I would have this thing. I could have a vehicle, a home and a job, but I could only get the two out of the three. So I was living in my truck and I was manager of like this Jiffy Lube, but I didn't have a home. But then when I had a home, I had my vehicle, but then I didn't have a job. It was just always, I could never get all three. I just couldn't. It was just this blockage. And so I'm living in my truck, running this Jiffy Lube, and I end up get terminated. So I start getting high a lot. And I 
destroyed in humiliation my job at Jiffy Lube. I like totally humiliated myself and really sunk into my addiction. And my aunt, she came up missing and she, a different aunt, you know, she ended up getting, coming up missing. She was a missing, missing persons, uh, missing person. And then her body was found. So she was murdered and her body was found. And that was, even though her and I weren't very close, we had a lot of similarities. And so that sent me into a really deep depression just because I felt like I could have saved her. And I let my own insecurities cause she was so beautiful. I didn't go and reach out into the places I knew she was in because I was intimidated by her. And so I took on a lot of that emotion with that. And, but I used it, I will never stop from helping anybody now, no matter how, how bad I feel about myself. I, I know it's not about me and that's selfish. And I don't carry it like in a way, like I'm beating myself up now. I, I grew through it and that's what happens is her death is not in vain for me because I was able to learn from it. And so that was like a big growing spurt, but I also seen all these old tendencies coming out in me as I'm in survival mode on the street. I don't even do heroin and I overdosed on heroin, you know, so I end up getting <laughs> Narcan and I'm trying to sell drugs, but I'm so stuck in my addiction and I'm just all over the place. And I see myself starting to take advantage of people again and manipulate them. And I, I don't like it. So I go back to what I've now created as a habit. And I got in this very toxic relationship with the guy that was very, I got trapped in this. I stayed stuck in this relationship for a very long time with him. Like this was a battle to, we trauma bonded really well. And so I get with him because I don't trust myself. And I'm like, hey, I just feel like something dark is happening inside of my heart. And I just feel like it's like, I'm just, all of my insides are turning black and I'm turning dark and I don't want to be evil and I need your help. And so... You know, that was the perfect recipe for him. Like, when, he's like, really? Okay, let me totally help you here. And next thing you know, I'm just, I can't get clean. I'm shooting up like crazy. I can't stop. And it's not his fault I'm shooting up. I'm already like stuck shooting up, right? I I will take full accountability for that. I couldn't hit myself. I have all these abscesses everywhere, but he could help, he could help hit me. And my neck is where I ended up needing to go. I'm breaking off needles in my arm. Like it was bad. I got so bad at it. I think that me trying to shoot up became a form of self-mutilation for me because even if I would get it, I would pull it right out and I would just like destroy myself. I didn't want to get high. I didn't want to be high. I hated being high, but I couldn't stop at this point. And I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to be dead. And I ended up getting arrested. Uh, I was set up on a controlled buy and I ended up going to jail and I was for the first time sentenced to a program. I actually was able to do a program and I get out since I had successfully terminated probation already. They gave me another chance on probation because I was a great candidate. They get their money and, you know, they know I'm going to comply because I don't like jail. So I, I go into a program called the Dora program and I went from being homeless on the street uh living at this shelter this guy I kept trying to be with the same guy and he's beating me up like I drove into a river my first day out of jail trying to get away from him <laughs> I check into probation I'm trying to get away from him I have this big black eye I get into the it's this whole mess um but I really loved him you know I had this attachment to him and I really I I felt like he was helping me in a lot of ways you know I felt like he kept me in check he would call me on my bs 
And the stuff that he called me on that wasn't real. That was just a, a tactic for him to try to get control or to get me in a high, hypervigilant emotional state. I was like, well, it's justified because I've done so many shitty things that I deserve that, you know, so I can take the good with the bad. And, but he was very, very physically abusive in that time. Um, and so when I finally broke free from him, I just couldn't take it anymore. My probation officer said, you can't see him anymore. Like no contact order, you will go to jail. So I, I decided I was going to start fighting to, to be sober. I really wanted to try it. So I, I was able to get on housing and I have an apartment and I start going to treatment and I thrive in treatment. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm learning this stuff. This is incredible. Things are starting to click in my brain and I'm starting to have these connections and I'm so happy. So I start going to college at Weber state. I complete the program as fast as you can complete it. They were going to have me be a peer support way sooner than I was supposed to be able to like, it was this whole thing. And I was working this part-time job and I was just happy. Like I was still had sadness. I was still struggling, but I was staying clean. And I made it over a year clean from everything. My first period of uh, sobriety that I had ever had since I was a little girl. And I was really proud of myself, but then COVID hit. <laughs> and once everything shut down, I had all these external deeds that I was doing, right? I was very proud of, but I hadn't done all the inside work yet. So here I am alone in my apartment and my apartment was a war zone for me. I... I would look in the mirror and I, I hated what I seen. I hated everything about me inside and out every, and I couldn't stop reliving every moment, every memory, every choice, all this say like the self hate and the torment, it just, it started to win. And I fell really hard. I allowed that guy back into my life after getting a protective order against him and staying away from him. I, I was lonely and I, felt like he had helped me grow. I thought maybe in my mind, I convinced myself that all the tactics he had used, he really was helping me because I got better, right? So it made sense. I'm lonely. I'm now doing better. All the stuff he taught me brought me to my breaking point. Now I'm rebuilding up. Maybe, maybe there's something there. Maybe, maybe his tactics were valid. And so I let him back in and I start drinking. And next thing I know, I'm getting high and it just, and it turned into, I miss sobriety. I remembered I'd finally had a taste of sobriety, but I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to get it back. I just knew I wanted it. So I went through really, really, really bad um, addiction to the needle and um, moments where I was going to kill myself. And it was just a really scary time for me. It was a really sad time. So I would get little bits of periods of sobriety, right? I found this, my friend invited me to this group, Recovering Addicts. And because he was really concerned for me. And when I went to, when I went into this group, it was, I saw something in them. Like they were so happy. Uh, so what they do is, so you go in and we own our own gym. So you go in, you, there's a free workout. It's a completely free program. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you go in and you work out from six to seven at night and then from seven to eight we do like peer support groups and mentoring and and lessons and then we go out in the community and we do this service work for other nonprofits and we do all these fun activities like archery or cliff diving or laser tag or painting just all this fun stuff that I had never experienced but I'm watching these before all that even happens I'm watching watching all these amazing people just laughing and having fun and they're so connected they care about each other there's love you can feel the love right and I'm like how do I get that 
how how can I how can I experience that that connection that's something I've been looking for my whole life how do I how do I learn to have how do you learn connection though how do you learn how to have connection you know that's supposed to be something we just naturally know how to do but I didn't and so I kept going back so even though I'm trapped in this relationship and my face is all picked up. I'm picking my face apart. And I have these crazy matted up rotating wigs, you know, and I'm just like a little off. I'm just a little crazy. I'm super dysregulated and I don't know how to talk to people. And I'm really quiet. I, I kept, they kept inviting me back and, and I kept getting, starting to get better. I started learning, like, let me do these gratitude lists every day. And I like vigilantly started doing gratitude lists and self-love lists and, it didn't happen overnight. I kept, I'd get little periods of sobriety and a little distance from the sky, but then I would crash. And I'm like, why can't I make it to 30 days? Why can't I make it to 30 days? I would always be right before 30 days. Like I couldn't even I'd get, I'd go there and sit in these groups and I wouldn't go there high, but then I'd come home and I would have to get high, you know? And people would come over to my house and I would have their, they do all this online, like, um, social media content, these live streams and these videos, and people would have to be watching this recovery content while getting high in my living room because, you know, I, I wanted sobriety. I wanted it so bad. I just didn't know if it was ever going to click. And so one day I, I was ready to kill myself because I just got sick of being living in shame and humiliation. And it was actually less than a year ago. So less than a year ago, I actually sat on this, on my floor in this room right here, my bedroom. And I cried out, to God and I was just so I was so sad I was so broken and I told God that I was mad at him like for the first time in my life I always still stayed close to God even when I would distance myself from him from my own shame and guilt I I was mad at God and I felt like I was doing everything I knew how to do to get clean and all God had to do was just snap his fingers and I would be okay right but God wasn't snapping his fingers and I wasn't okay so I just told him I couldn't do it anymore. I, I was at the end of myself and I had given it the best run I really had. I had been fighting and fighting and fighting my whole life and I was exhausted. And the weirdest thing happened. They taught, we, we hear it talked about, like we hear them talk about surrender, right? You need to learn how to surrender and, you know, give up your power over to your higher power. Like, and I, mine's God or give your will over to God and believe that he can, he can handle it. And, I never knew what that meant, but as I'm like sitting there, just ready to end my life, it was done. I was done. Like my life was ending at that moment. I suddenly felt this wave of just this peace hit me. And it wasn't like the sensations, like, you know, when you have an emotional breakdown and all of a sudden when you're done, you have like that calmness and you're like, okay, I feel better. It wasn't like that. It was different. Yeah. It was just this. Yeah. It was an indescribable before, feeling calm after everything. Yeah. And it was just incredible. And I suddenly felt like I was going to be okay and that I had hope. And it was just, it was incredible. And, and just to make sure I recognize this like significant event that happened, my friend has been going through a really hard time and uh, he had lost his place to live and he's still out there. He's also struggling in his addictions and I, uh, his son, his 13 year old wound up on my doorstep because he needed somewhere to go. And God knew that I needed, needed him just as much as he needed me. And I now have um, custody of this. He's now 14. I now have custody of this 14 year old and he's my best buddy. 
and we teach each other so much. So now I, now I get to be a mom, you know, I love being his bonus mom. It's incredible. And I get to watch him grow, but we get to grow together. Cause I haven't really got to learn how to experience life, but on those days where the depression hits me or I just want to stay in bed and bawl my eyes out, or I just can't find a reason to get out of bed. Like I got to get him to school. <laughs> He's got to eat food. Like he doesn't deserve, you know, to just be stuck, like dealing with my, all my anguish. So. Yeah. It's amazing. So how caring my best buddy. And yeah. so it's really, that's what broke the cycle for me is connection. That is yeah. a big thing. I mean, people don't realize, especially when you have a responsibility. I mean, that's the reason I got sober is I found out my ex-girlfriend was pregnant. So once you find out someone else is going to be depending on you, you kind of got to get your shit together. Yes. And that's awesome. That That is what inspired you. That's that's way I love when I hear stories like that. Yeah, that I don't want my daughter to ever see. I don't want her to ever see the bad side of me. But we do what we can and we fight every day, right? Absolutely. So how's everything going for you nowadays? So nowadays things are amazing. Uh, I have, I, like I mentioned, I'm part of this group recovering addicts <laughs> and my connection with them. Well, my connection with them and with Cohen, the little boy and my connection with God and my connection with all parts of myself has really, I care. I look back and I look and I'm like, I'm not the same person I was a month ago. I'm not even close to the same person I was a year ago. I, I just, I've never felt so, so content inside of myself, so comfortable within me. It's really cool. And so I, I always try, I, I'm really big on, as we're, in order to stay clean, we got to be doing something to get back, right? That's, that makes our, our story and our life not be in vain. And I want to be a voice for people who don't realize that they have a voice. Uh, because if it wasn't for the people in my life that have inspired me to accept my own darkness and that have taught me that I matter and given me that, that time and that compassion and that understanding, even when they don't understand what they're trying to understand, <laughs> you know, they, they yeah. love me. And without my amazing support network has been guiding me into this life I've never dreamed possible. And so through that, I want to be able to be that person for somebody else. And, and I feel we do that by sharing our story or giving of our time. And so I, I work with part-time with Recovering Addict. I do community outreach. So I try to help get people in touch with just like kind of like resources, let them know who we are and try to just help them know sobriety is, is, a, is possible and that there is hope. And I've been sharing my story. Um, the first time I shared it, it was at a fundraising event for this place called Soak to Hope. That was back in December. Uh, they help women, men, anybody who is on the streets, just know that they are loved. They help um, women and men who are being trafficked, exploited, abused, and they meet them where they're at and just show love, whether it's through like harm reduction and just visiting and connection or helping them to break free from, from that. Uh, if they want to relocate. So I was able to share my story with them, which was a huge healing. It was like really healing for me. It was like my first time really going public. And now, and then I just, I go out, I try to get all the certifications I can get. I have an amazing friend with this place called Hope on Tap, who helps people get, do mobile testing for like HIV, Pepsi, um, practice like 
just to stay clean, get all the, 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 just the pills and the safety stuff they need. And if they are, it's instant testing. So if somebody comes up positive with the rapid results for AIDS or hep C or anything, they're able to get in touch with treatment and help stay safe and keep others safe. And so I'm trying to do a lot more work with her. She's taking me under her wing. Uh, her name's Saquon. And I just was offered a job with a place called Warrior Spirit. Uh, so who also help like women and men, but I'd be working with the women um, in sober living environments who have been, a lot of them are like natives who have uh, gone through a lot of, a lot of stuff. Cause there's a lot that happens on the reservations that women don't get protected from as children either or as adults. So I'm excited for that opportunity. So yeah, I'm just a little bit of everywhere. I'm just happy. I just try to keep going out and learn how to live life. And it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard some days. Some days I feel I'm going to spontaneously combust because I have anxiety and I don't know what to do with my hands, but I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've been through a lot, but like I said before, you're still here. That's all that matters. And you are who you are because of everything you've been through today. And it's amazing how when we give back and do something to be of service, how it keeps us sober. I find that to be amazing. I think it was one of the best found discoveries that Bill W. found with AA was the 12th step and giving back. And that keeps you sober. It's like unexplainable. I don't know. I can't explain what we do. Like me helping people and doing whatever you know I can do really keeps me sober. I guess it gives us a sense of purpose, That's, right? Sense of purpose yes, is very important. Absolutely. So again, towards the end here, let me ask you one last question. Do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Don't ever give up. That's the thing. As long as you don't give up. I think the hardest part for me is every day you need to find some sort of reason, some sort of purpose, to even if it changes, even if it's something small, it doesn't have to be something significant. You just need to find something to latch onto to help you fight through, even if you can't do it for you yet. For me, it's been so hard. Some days, like until Cohen showed up at my house, and even, even after some days, you know, sometimes it's the hardest thing in the world is to just get up. Even if it's getting up before noon, it was so, so hard and getting up to like actually eat something healthy or to maybe go for a walk or even some days I couldn't even leave the house, you know, like to get up and I don't know, maybe just even use some mouthwash, <laughs> you know, it was like a huge, huge challenge. But if that's what you have to grasp onto for the day, get up and walk to the bathroom and brush your teeth even something small that you can just start to have it stack on and build upon and and just get some confidence and in your abilities and in yourself you know uh, gratitude lists just find anything you can really to help you fight for even if it's just for the day you know because you're worth that if, as soon as you give up and you decide you're not as soon as you decide to give up and you're, you're done there's no more hope for you you know, it's, you gotta, you gotta keep trying because life changes and you don't have to stay in that low place forever. There's, there's resources out there. There's always somebody out there that you can reach out to now, whether it's on social media or a hotline or some, even some random person on the street, a lot of times safe random person on the street, you know, but a lot of times people want to help mm -hmm. people. 
they really do. The world is a scary place, but there's not as there are good people out there who do care. So just don't give up. I guess that'd be my advice. Awesome. I really want to thank you for being so open and honest and coming on the podcast today. Thank you. I thank you for having me on here and letting me share. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. So do you have anything else that you want to add in? <laughs> Not that You're I can think to... of. <laughs> All right. No, yeah. like I said, you did great. It was an awesome, I don't want to say awesome, but it was a very packed in story. There's You packed in a lot of experience in the amount of time you've been around. How old are you now? I'm 32. Okay. Oh, that's why you mentioned that before. Okay. Yeah. So you packed in a lot of experience and certain amount of years but do me a favor and sit tight let's wrap this up for everyone watching and listening if you like what you saw and heard go below and give us a like also subscribe to see when we upload new videos you can check us out on facebook twitter reddit instagram tiktok tumblr pretty much you name it as far as social media you can find us on it you can also check out our website which is www.addicts-anonymous.com there you find plenty of free resources as well as literature Addicts Anonymous also has a book coming out. Hopefully by the end of February, it's called Addicts Anonymous, Our Stories. Uh, I write on a number of different topics as well as a collection of people's stories. So I hope you enjoyed everything today. I'll keep you posted as far as the book goes. And until next time.